Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today are two of America's leading Asia experts, Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, and Randy Shriver, who served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs in the Trump administration. He's with the Pacific Solutions Consultancy and also the chairman of the Project 2049 Institute to fully normalize relations between the United States and Taiwan. Randy and Patrick, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to have you both back on. Very happy to be with you. Delighted to be here. Uh, and Patrick, uh, special thanks for joining us uh, as much as you have your regular uh, Friday uh, roundtable uh, member and your pulling special uh, duty, and you join the uh, Cavus Ships podcast as well. So we, we thank you for your uh, all your time. Um, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, and uh, we have been having a, a couple of these programs over the course of the week. Uh, and uh, to take a look at the first six months of the year or seven months of the year, as the case may be, what were the interesting things that happened that tell us what to expect in the coming, uh, what to expect in the remainder uh, of uh, the year? And normally we do this in a year-end podcast, but on a couple uh, areas, uh, the Navy being one of them, cyber being the other, and China uh, being the last, there, there has been a lot of activity that's worth uh, dig digging into. Randy, let me start uh, with, uh, with you. Um, what were the key sort of China storylines, uh, the things that jump out at you uh, over the course of what has been a fairly extraordinary 2022 from a Chinese messaging and indeed activity standpoint? Well, it's been quite a remarkable year, uh, Vago. Um, I know we're supposed to look back six months, but I think to do that, you have to understand how much Xi Jinping and China is looking forward to the party Congress this fall. Uh, this, this is the party Congress where Xi Jinping will uh, formally consolidate his position as, as ruler in perpetuity because he'll go beyond the, uh, what was previously thought to be a precedent of, of two five-year terms. So really working back from that, you see a lot of China's behavior explained by his need to show strength, his need to maintain control. And so you look at some of the remarkable events, the COVID zero policy, which really threw Shanghai and other major commercial areas into shutdown again, uh, which really impacts the Chinese economy, which impacts supply chains. Uh, I think for uh, security folks, the big story has been uh, China's strategic alignment with Russia, particularly uh, after the uh, Olympics and the statement of the relationship has no ceiling if shortly followed there by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and she and his decision to stick with Putin and continue to support Russia and even uh, after those those events. Um, and of course, the continuing pressure on on Taiwan and we're seeing things ratchet up even further there with a lot of coercive behavior. So 
again, to work backward, really from the party Congress, I think what we're seeing is, is she trying to position himself internationally and domestically to ensure he, he uh, solidifies his position. Patrick, uh, you, you join us regularly for these uh, uh, sorts of conversations, but you know, what, uh, you know, we, we, we just heard from, from Randy, what are the things that jump out at you over the course uh, of, of the year that you think is, is gonna be most consequential going forward, not just for the next five months, but indeed, uh, right, as Randy said, the leadership succession that would put Xi at a level of Mao Zedong, uh, for example. I think Randy would agree that really there have been very few surprises other than maybe the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. Um, everything that China is doing, it's just intensifying uh, previous behavior under Xi Jinping in particular, but well before Xi as well. So the obsession with internal instability um, and the need to have absolute uh, party state control um, is uh, continuing. And, and the COVID zero policy was a good instance of that that Randy mentioned. But, you know, the visit to Hong Kong was a victory lap, uh, kind of an anti-Gorbachev Xi moment uh, in terms of smothering uh, the umbrella revolution after three years, uh, you know, out from dissent. Um, here you have uh, Xi Jinping going to Hong Kong and, and declaring, um, you know, effectively complete Beijing uh, rule in the submission of Hong Kong. Um, you have a man, you know, in Xi Jinping who is very much in a hurry. And that's why what, what's really different in the last six months sort of uh, encouraged this thinking, you know, the thinking of Jude Blanchett in terms of talking about, uh, you know, the timeline that is driving Xi Jinping. Why the urgency? Uh, what is driving him? And he, he is on a timeline. Um, so every month that goes by is another month ticking down for his rule, even though he's maybe a ruler for life. You know, that's still limited in terms of three, four terms. Uh, and he's very much, uh, yeah, looking forward to the party Congress, but but well beyond that as well. Um, so this window is closing, and we don't know whether there's going to be some action taken in the next six months, the next six years. Um, you know, there likely will be an intensification of this rivalry. The military muscle that's growing um, and that we've seen with the launch of the third carrier that we've talked about, um, the idea that there was, you know, been lots of intrusions into the, uh, across the median line of the Taiwan Strait, but the, the PLA Air Force crossing this while Senator Rick Scott's in Taiwan just kind of highlights exactly how much um, China is willing to risk uh, sort of uh, you know, alienating the world um, and show, show its teeth, bear its teeth. Um, I just came from a discussion with the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia and Defense Minister Richard Marles, an excellent talk at CSIS. But he's reiterated the point that we are now in the midst of the biggest military modernization program since World War II, and that's what China's doing. And I think, you know, Randy can talk about this at length, but uh, we're seeing this. The growing risk of conflict with China is growing as well. Um, so even though you may, you may not agree with Oriana Schuyler Mastro that, you know, uh, she wants to see this as a legacy issue, the forceful unification of necessary of Taiwan, um, but uh, you certainly don't want to be complacent about what is the growing possibility of conflict across the strait. Uh, and I think Russia's invasion has just amplified all of these anxieties, even while China's pushing not just regionally, but globally to uh, change rules and institutions to basically weaken U.S. alliances, replace the idea of universal values with state primacy. Um, that's the key for, for China. Um, and I think these are the challenges that we've seen coming last year uh, and before. And we've seen the first six months go into hyperdrive. I expect more of this for the next six months and well into uh, this this decade. 
did uh, did Randy did I mean you said that none of this uh, is surprising and in some sense uh, once you open your imagination um, then it's not surprising I think in many cases if you look at what the Russians are doing we convince ourselves well they wouldn't do that um, I mean I don't understand why anybody was surprised by what happened on February 24th Russian troops were massing on the border. Uh, and the rhetoric was increasing. Uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 it should have surprised nobody that he actually, uh, that Putin pulled the trigger in Ukraine any more than, than the Chinese are just delivering on the rhetoric that's been building up and what they've been saying they're going to do for 20 years. Is there anything in what they're doing that to you is surprising? Well, I think the statement you just made about delivering on rhetoric, uh, you, you, as you know, my institute uh, specializes in looking at Chinese language materials. And as, uh, as our common friend James Mulvenon says, the first line of encryption for China is Chinese. If you get past that, you see a lot of clarity about what their intentions are. And so, you know, I think very little is surprising. Perhaps the, the sense of urgency that Patrick mentioned has manifested in to several actions almost, uh, if not simultaneous, in close proximity to one another. And one could wonder, why does China want problems with India, with Vietnam, with Japan, with Taiwan, with Australia, sort of all at the same time? Um, so I, I wonder sometimes if they are, are appropriately count, calculating not only the reputational cost, but how this is really driving alignment of, of really all countries not named China. And I wonder if you ask the same question of an analyst in China, what they might be surprised about with the United States and our allies, I think they might respond, you know, the quad has come together quite effectively. And now they're looking at uh, programs such as maritime domain awareness in the Pacific Islands, you know, which is a really uh, interesting and operational uh, kind of program between the four countries. Uh, the, the fact of closer alignment with some of our key Southeast Asian uh, uh, partners, um, the kinds of things that are going on. So, you know, if I were to say uh, a development that, that maybe is, is different than what, what we've expected, it is that sort of pace and, and scope of how they're uh, really creating tension on, on its entire periphery other than, than Russia. Um, Patrick, uh, same, same question uh, to, to you, right? Because they are one of two ways of looking at it, right? History has shown that anybody who thinks that they're strong enough to take everybody on has usually ended up miscalculating, even if Chinese, China does have a whole series of benefits, right? Bigger population, an actual strategic plan to do it. It's just that there is this sense that, you know, why pick a, you know, win without fighting was uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, uh, motto. Uh, and it seems like we're also moving away from that. But, but to the point of surprise, right? I mean, is anything here surprising you in, in what they're doing? Well, I think the potential for surprise becomes ever more possible. Um, so it's not that I've been surprised by what China's done for the reasons that Randy's articulated and that they've been telegraphing this sort of harder line ever since, frankly, Xi Jinping's rise. Um, you know, he, he built on a, a strong foundation of a, a more techno-nationalist uh, China that was modernizing its military. And he's just sort of accelerated a lot of these trends. Um, but he's become much more audacious. Uh, he's very much um, risk acceptant. 
Um, and I think you never know what could be around the corner, um, maybe not before the party Congress, but you know, in the coming year, um, Xi Jinping may be willing to take even more audacious steps. They may not be an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, there are a lot of audacious steps that can be taken short of that. You know, seizing the semiconductor, uh, you know, uh, capacity of Taiwan uh, is something that's been out in the press. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's likely, but the point is there could be something that's different from uh, an invasion scenario of Taiwan that really presses the community in the in the region to um, make sure that they're acting on this moment of clarity. And I think that's really what the opportunity is here. That China has given us this shared clarity of opportunity to cooperate. Um, and to push back and to provide a counterbalance. Um, and that counterbalance, if it's just rhetorical and we don't follow through and we don't have not just deterrence, but even a good offense, um, then we'll have uh, missed this opportunity to make sure that we don't let the gap that could lead to the breakdown of deterrence uh, grow uh, even wider. And I think, you know, so there's no surprise for me yet, but um, Let's keep an open mind and not assume that things tomorrow will be exactly like yesterday. Randy, I'm, I want to go to, uh, with you. Whatever criticism there was of the Trump administration, you certainly was part of uh, that uh, was part of the team that was working very, very hard to help step up uh, the game uh, against uh, China. General Mattis was focused on that, and indeed, Mark Esper was laser focused on that. Indeed, starting every meeting with, "Hey, you know, how have we moved this ball forward?" Uh, you know, and I've been asking folks about the window. Uh, what's our window of deterrence? Uh, you know, in order for it to serve as some sort of uh, motivating factor for us to get our act together, because again, there are a lot of things that go into deterrence. From from your standpoint, is that ball being moved forward as quickly as it needs to be moving um, if we are going to continue to deter China from miscalculating? I'd like to see some aspects of that move more quickly, but look, I think uh, the focus is there and the, the prioritization is there. You, you, the, you, you would note that senior administration officials have consistently said, even with the focus on Russia and Ukraine and the response with our European partners and allies that China is our long-term priority. And so the focus is there. But look, the, the work that needs to be done in the Indo-Pacific is, is significant. We've been equipping and training and preparing a force for an entirely different kind of warfare for a couple of decades now. And what you need for a successful uh, military and a counterterrorism uh, stability operations environment versus great power competition is, is quite different. And with China on the move, particularly with its ability through ballistic and cruise missiles alone to hold our forward deployed forces at risk. We need to think about how to fight in a contested environment, how to have an effective distributed and dispersed force with all the logistics, support, ammunition, maintenance, uh, supplies that would be needed. Uh, and that's, you know, that's going to take a lot. So we're moving, but uh, uh, as the uh, American humorist Will Rogers said, even if you're on the right track, you can still get run over if you're not going fast enough. So that's my concern. Patrick? Well, I would second everything Randy just said. Uh, going back to sort of how Xi Jinping sees this window, um, you know, scholars have written about um, and made a lot of his quote recently about the profound changes unseen in a century he's talked about. Um, so he himself sees a window of 10 or 15 years 
in which there's this opportunity for geopolitical ascent of China uh, to move into its central place, but there's also uh, a, a threat, a threat from demographics, a threat from structural economic problems, a threat posed by uh, the United States. But he sees the United States as fundamentally weak. So again, it goes back to the opportunity. So if he thinks there's this 10 to 15 year opportunity, and that's what justifies having rule for life, um, you know, he wants to make a difference now. Um, and that's where the Phil Davidson window comes in. The, you know, when he gave testimony last year, he talked about 2027 being a particularly bad point of a net assessment where potentially our Navy was at a low ebb. China was uh, gaining uh, in the military balance in the region um, and was being uh, very assertive. So um, the things that Randy's talking about, including long range strike and distributed strike, being able to make sure that we have a, a resilient network of allies and partners who can um, be ready to uh, deter and to act if necessary. Um, you know, this is going to be part of the credible deterrent that hopefully will keep Xi thinking, well, this is not the moment to uh, take action, uh, kinetic action. Let me keep trying to get my, my objectives and fill this uh, opportunity in other ways while balancing the many challenges that China faces uh, at home uh, and uh, along its uh, big periphery. Vago, can I add just uh, one I, more I remember one asking. More comment? Yeah, of course, go ahead. So I think the other piece of this that we all need to keep in mind is uh, deterrence is not solely a, a military task here. And the administration says the right things about integrated deterrence, meaning uh, whole of government, meaning uh, work with partners and allies. And I think the spirit is there, and, and that, that would include uh, people who have not always been aligned with us on China. I just returned from Europe, and uh, they, they've, they've got the, the message now. Uh, if it, it wasn't uh, concentration camps, it wasn't pressure on Taiwan, it wasn't incursions into the, the Japanese uh, East China Sea holdings of the Senkaku, it was China's backing of, of Russia. And so we've got a lot of alignment with partners and allies. We've got thoughts about whole of government, uh, but we're lagging behind in terms of specific ideas and specific policies and, and understanding the tools at our disposal and how to use them. And, you know, you look at something like the amount of foreign investment from the United States still going into China, that number continues to increase year in, year out, uh, which means we're basically funding our our main competitor, if not adversary. Uh, and, and we've got to take a look at all those things because deterrence by denial on the military front is only one piece of, of what we ultimately need to, to deter China. And we're, and we're just not getting our, our full toolkit uh, in use right now. And Vago, can I just, you know, again, emphasize, I think Randy's exactly on point here. So I know the administration and, and Secretary Austin um, like to talk about the three uh, pillars of this integrated deterrence. So the building and the Pentagon, the military, they've got their act going in the right direction. Um, the interagency and then the allied are the other two pillars. And so the interagency, including our economic policy, including the political will to back um, some tough calls, um, that's gonna be challenged. And we're gonna have to make sure that there really is that integrated uh, interagency will to back deterrence. And then we're also gonna have to make sure we're filling in uh, much more expeditiously and purposefully the allied and partner side. And so again, just to take the Australian example and the things that uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Defense Minister Marles was talking about today, 
um, there's no doubt that AUKUS and the Submarine and High Technology Cooperation uh, requires a massive improvement uh, in human capacity, in industrial capacity, in cooperation between the private sector and government, um, in, as well as obviously across our alliances. Um, and that's where those challenges have to be joined with urgency. Um, and yet we have to safeguard our open technological innovation industrial base in Australia, the United States, UK, and other countries, and make sure that China doesn't use the strategic malign influence that it knows how to use so well to usurp uh, our, our sort of property, uh, to uh, conduct espionage, to undermine our political will. And I do see this is a, a point of Xi Jinping lately. He's you know, increasing the talks with Australia, the new labor government, um, pressing ahead maybe on the new Philippine president, Marcos, you know, they're going to be trying to pick apart our alliances and weaken them and slow down the pace at which we've been trying to gain momentum. And I think that's that momentum must be pushed forward because this is getting more intense, not less. So what concretely has to happen between now and the end of the year from, from your guys' standpoint, right? I mean, we've set up what the challenges are. We're moving in that direction. We're seeing that we have all manner of supply chain problems. You know, as you were saying, Russia was the catalyst for this. There have been a number of people who um, have been discussing, right? We don't have the right kinds of weaponry. We don't have it in enough volume. We're the arsenal of the world. We've made uh, enormous amounts of equipment available to Ukraine. And now we're finding that our own uh, stocks are depleted. And indeed, the European stocks are depleted. And we're finding it's going to take as many years for us to reconstitute that capability. Um, the Chinese are not stupid. Uh, they're also watching this and frankly, make some of the components that actually do go into some, some of our systems. Um, ultimately, Randy, what has to happen in the next five months? Um, because we're still waiting for a national defense strategy, for example, that's not yet been uh, disclosed. Um, walk us through what has to happen in the next five months that would indicate urgency and would indicate and continue to deter uh, our Chinese friends from miscalculating. Because you know it's interesting the way Phil Davidson answered that question towards the end of his tenure uh, in, in that sort of, uh, you know, uh, five-year window and how he answered it when I asked him in 2019, that exact same question about what, what our window is. So I'd say a few things, five months in, in Washington is a pretty short period of time, particularly in an election year, particularly when, um, most of the work of the Congress will have to wrap up, uh, here shortly before the recess and the campaigning really starts. But I would say a few things. It would be great if we've got uh, real commitment and real resourcing to the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, because I think that's the enabler for Indo-PACOM to really think about dispersed and distributed force operations. Uh, you have to have wider access and you have to have the support, the logistics support and, and supplies and ammunition to be able to make that real and meaningful. So that's number one. And number two, I think some commitment to accelerate capability to Taiwan. And this is where Ukraine becomes uh, problematic, um, not because uh, they're, they're uh, asking for things in, in um, uh, cases that aren't, aren't urgent or, or merited, they, they certainly are. But Taiwan is also facing an increasing threat and a sense of urgency. If we could identify a, a couple or handful of capabilities and just say, we're going to accelerate this, uh, I think that would, that would uh, speak well. And then I think third, um, look, we were all uh, shocked and, and moved by the, 
the tragedy of, of Prime Minister Abe's assassination. Um, uh, but we move on because we must, and we see the LDP had an excellent showing at the uh, in the uh, upper house elections. We see uh, Kashida is a stronger position. And by the way, uh, Prime Minister Abe's uh, half-brother as defense minister, Kishi, is determined to carry out uh, his, his uh, deceased brother's vision and, and uh, aspirations for Japan. So I think in the next five months, we can do something meaningful with Japan on the defense and security side, particularly when it comes to a potential bilateral plan for Taiwan. So that would be my, uh, my list of three things that I think actually are achievable in five months. Patrick? Yeah, building on that, I mean, I think um, on China policy, we should continue to um, seek uh, the kind of strategic um, uh, sort of guard posts that we're we're hoping to build with them, but at the same time, um, draw attention to China's actions, to China's words uh, in the region to make sure that they're being transparent where they're obviously not, whether it's their expansion of their nuclear force or whether it's trying to sell and co-opt uh, leaders in the Pacific. Um, you know, secondly, with our allies and partners, um, you know, Randy mentioned the importance of working closely with Japan as we must, uh, even, even more so after the tragedy of the assassination of, of former Prime Minister Abe. Um, Japan obviously is on the cusp of finishing critical documents by the end of this year, uh, including one that would be the blueprint for a doubling of the defense budget, or at least a substantial increase of defense over the next five years. We need to make sure we are fully integrated in our thinking uh, in terms of how that money is spent uh, and, and planned for, because um, that's real increased capability that is focused on the pacing challenge of China. Um, we, similarly, with Australia and AUKUS, uh, the, the, uh, the, the outline for the blueprint of what's going to happen with AUKUS is due in essentially in the spring of next year, but I wouldn't wait until then. We need to make sure that the administration here is working closely with Australia and closely with the UK to make sure that that's going to be a success uh, and that we're going to be building on that. Um, I, I would also uh, double down on the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. I think we need to do actually more than they're calling for uh, in terms of that opportunity. Um, and we need to make sure still, you know, thinking globally that we, we make sure that the unity that we've built um, with a strategic concept in NATO uh, and with the Indo-Pacific presence in Madrid at the Madrid summit, that we build on that. Um, I think that international strength, especially when you're thinking about a world in which we're threatened by cyber threats and space, nuclear weapons, um, it's very important to show that uh, our allies uh, do ring the world and uh, we're going to stand up against aggression in Europe, hopefully make that a shorter war, not a longer war. Um, but we're not going to be uh, you know, dissuaded from uh, stepping up uh, in the Indo-Pacific, which is the theater of priority. Randy, let me ask you one uh, brief uh, question. Our mutual friend, Wendell Minnick, uh, posted a, a thought-provoking piece, if a little bit tongue-in-cheek uh, in, in, in parts of it, where he sort of laid bare the concern uh, that even some Taiwanese friends have, have expressed that we're not the same as Ukraine, um, that the society is very different, it's very comfortable, uh, and it's unclear whether the Taiwanese would be willing to bear uh, the kind of burden as stoically uh, and in such unified fashion uh, as Ukrainians uh, have. What's, what's the sense uh, on that uh, as the United States and indeed the American president, you've joined us a couple of times to discuss um, you know, what President Biden time and again has said is, you know, we would fight for uh, Taiwan. Uh, he said it three times now. Um, so clearly that's what he thinks. 
Um, you know, what what did you, you know, what's your response, I guess, to, to, to the piece and more specifically to the notion that the Taiwanese might not be able to do what the Ukrainians are, are doing um, and what that then means in terms of the bilateral defense security and, and indeed uh, the notion of the United States fighting for Taiwan. I think Taiwan has a professional military and I think it's getting better. And I think they also have the opportunity to learn from Ukraine. And the, the fact that Ukraine has not fallen and has been quite effective in its own defense, I have heard as, is inspiring people in Taiwan, uh, not, not, the, not the reverse or the opposite, that they're somehow dis, uh, disgruntled that they could not mount the same kind of defense. I, I've heard, in fact, it's been inspiring to them. And there are some important lessons for them to take away, and it not only applies to the military, um, look, if Zelensky uh, pulls out of the country, uh, if he takes that ride, uh, if he pulls a, a, a Ghani, uh, as, as uh, we saw in Afghanistan, uh, then the Ukraine is not the Ukraine. It's a very different situation. So I think Taiwan is pulling some lessons from this. They understand the importance of leadership, the importance of continuity of government, and the military will take lessons from this. Uh, they're about to launch their uh, largest annual exercise, the Hong Kong exercise. The U.S. government will have some high-level observers there to not only observe, but actively comment and, and discuss. Um, so I, I'm more optimistic than our mutual friend. And I think uh, particularly uh, as they watch events unfold in Europe and, and see Ukrainians fight it, it, it does a couple things. It, it removes this notion of conflict uh, as it removes it as an abstraction and a, something that they can hardly conceive of to, to something a little more real. And uh, I think that the daily pressure and coercion they face is also getting the attention of, of the right people. And uh, I, I sense that there is a growing uh, seriousness and sense of purpose in Taiwan and uh, like I said, I, I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than our mutual friend. Patrick, uh, any last thought before we wrap it up? Well, bloodshed has a way of uh, focusing uh, a, a country and focusing a people and a society. And I think that if uh, China starts to use kinetic force um, you know, to kill people across uh, the Taiwan Strait, um, it will not only reverberate around the world bigger than the invasion of Ukraine, but I think the people of Taiwan will be uh, standing very tall for their own sovereignty, their own democracy. And Vago, just before we go, a final point. I think we need to subject the PLA to some analysis and, and scrutiny as well. Uh, this is a military that hasn't seen combat since 1979, which means there's nobody serving in the current force that has been in combat. And there's some unusual uh, qualities of this military. Uh, this would be the first time in human history that a leader would ask a military to go to war with a military fully comprised of single child uh, children from their respective families. In other words, all products of the one child policy. We see how Russian mothers have been distressed of seeing their sons shipped to war in, in a questionable campaign from Vladimir Putin. Do Chinese families want to sacrifice the only child they were allowed to have for a vanity project of Xi Jinping. I'm not saying this would 
hamper the PLA so much that they, they wouldn't be effective. But I think these are things that bear some analysis and, and questioning. Uh, to, to your point that the military didn't want to fire on other Chinese at Tiananmen. Well, that's true as well. They, they uh, initially uh, were actually tasked to do that and then arrived and engaged in conversations with the students and, and other protesters and, and wouldn't fire on fellow citizens. They actually had to bring in outside forces, really the, the, the country folk, if you will, uh, PLA units, which used to be uh, regional in nature, and uh, they had to carry out the dirty task. So um, there are some things here that we really want to understand better before we uh, make, make certain assumptions. Gentlemen, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you both on and look forward to having you back on again uh, soon. Thanks so very much. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.